You know, when you all uh, pick up your Bible and look at it, it's got hundreds and hundreds of pages, 66 books and all these chapters and Old and New Testaments, and it can become very confusing. And one of the things that I want to help you with, uh, particularly this morning, is to be able to take your Bible and look at it from perhaps a 30,000 foot view. Each Christmas, I try to remind you that the trajectory, the trajectory of God's grace, uh, His gospel, His love, is from heaven to earth. From heaven to earth. That's what makes your Bible unique, folks. Over against all other religions and all other philosophies and all other theologies, what is so unique about Christianity and what is so unique about our Bible is that it is God reaching down into the creation and actually reversing and restoring something that is dreadfully broken. So the best way to look at your Scripture is to understand that there are these cycles of redemptive, uh, redemptive history that are in the Scripture. And if you've been in any of our theology class, you know that uh, I've talked about this uh, uh, a great deal. The, one of the best ways to look at it is like this. Look for births. Look for uh, places where people are born. And you notice that, th- that after each one of those, a cycle of redemption uh, will begin. Look at, the birth of, uh, uh, look at the birth of Isaac. The cycle of redemption begins again after the birth of Abraham's promised son, Isaac. Look at the birth of Moses. The cycle begins again after the birth of Moses. Look at uh, Solomon, the promised son of David. The cycle of redemption begins again. In fact, paradise came back to the earth in the reign of Solomon. The streets were paved with gold. Silver uh, was counted as nothing. And so these births mark times of God's restoration uh, of His people. And so the cycle, you see, is people are in paradise. And then they sin. And they're cast into the wilderness. And then sometime in the wilderness, they cry out to God. And He sends a deliverer. There's a birth. And paradise is restored. Salvation is restored. And so in our Scripture that we're going to read this morning, we see that, albeit it's the very first one, and it's the story of Adam and Eve. God creates a couple, a human couple, and He pours His life, His Spirit, His breath into them. And they are to take the paradise of the garden and they're to extend the paradise of the garden into the whole world. There's the cycle beginning. And yet, right away, something happens and they fall. So if you have your Scriptures, look at 
Uh, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at this very famous passage. I'll read it to you. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll see the cycle as we go through. Starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat any of, tr- of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the servant, serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This uh, text from Genesis 3, as I said, is very famous. Uh, Almost everybody knows it, and the danger is that you do know it. And that you read through it and not see that there is a cycle of redemption that is beginning right here at the beginning of the Bible. The very third chapter, the Gospel is proclaimed in the Bible. There is a paradise. There is a fall from from paradise. There's a sin. A catastrophe. And then there is a promised restoration in a birth. The birth of the seed of the woman. And from this time until now, or at least until the birth of Jesus, and even we as we look forward to His second coming are looking for that restoration, people in the Old Testament looked for that cycle. And somehow in our modern times, we kind of get away from it. We, we take the Bible apart into too many pieces. We don't see the big, the big picture. And God does something in this third chapter that I think is is just remarkable. Listen to this. 
God could have consigned the human race to a continued alliance with the serpent. A friendship of evil. Instead, out of gracious love and tender mercy, He creates enmity, hostility, warfare. God Himself is singularly responsible for this. I will put enmity between you and the serpent. Adam and Eve, listen, Adam and Eve had embraced the serpent's lies for reasons that we may never truly understand. Where there should have developed a natural communion between fallen humanity and their new ally, Satan, there is instead a deep, hostile antagonism, a revulsion, an enmity, whether our forebears wanted it or not. From the earliest days of humanity, people, human beings, have understood that there is evil. Even in our amoral world today, our modern uh, 21st century world where, where truth is relative and people question, everybody knows it's evil to decapitate children and to murder wantonly and to create terror and havoc and to fly airplanes into buildings and to cheat people out of their money. And to rob and steal everyone on the planet. Doesn't matter what your religion is, we all understand that. And that is the enmity, the hostility that God created with Satan. It's known in uh, theological terms as common grace. It's a common love that God has shown to His creation. He said, I'm not going to leave you in the hands of of the one you chose. The one you have now given your allegiance to. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to create enmity between you and that offspring of Satan. Your seed, your children, will always be at warfare with the serpent. So let's look this morning real quickly. Three things. The purpose of this relationship. A relationship, folks, that God would not let go. You know, all of us have been hurt in relationships at one time or another. And some, uh, when you get hurt in a relationship, some people are real clingy. They just go after the person. They won't let them go. And other people uh, are, are just, oh, well, whatever. And they dump the relationship. But God was relentless in His love for His people. He would not get let them go. So what is the purpose, we'll look at first, of this relationship? Secondly, we'll look at the gift of enmity. What does that mean to us as, as people today? The gift of enmity. And finally, the restoration, the restoration of the relationship and how God does it. Do you know how He restores the relationship? It sends chills up my back to say it, but I'll say it because I hope it will embed itself in your mind right now. We'll get to it later. How does He restore our relationship? 
in a bruised heel. A humanity. A human who is wounded. That's how He restores His people. So, the purpose of relationship. Well, what is it? God's purpose, folks. Remember, 30,000 feet. We're way up here. We're looking down on the Bible. His purpose of creating you and me, His purpose for this world has always been fellowship, love, and communion with us. With His creation. With everything that He made. With the entire cosmos. He loves His creation. He loves the trees. He loves the rocks. He loves the animals. He loves my two dogs. He loves your work, your job, your career. He loves music. He loves to see us gather on Sunday morning. He loves Advent wreaths. He loves poinsettias. Everything. God has created a world filled with beauty and diversity and He loves it. And He walks, the Scripture says, He moves among it. Look at verse 8. He, he, the, the, they heard the sound of Him walking in the cool of the day. God is involved in His creation. He comes into His creation and is involved providentially in all of its doings. And paradise then, folks, paradise is not merely a place. It's not a geographic location on a map. Although you could have, you could have got your GPS and you could have located the Garden of Eden. But that's not why it was the Garden of Eden. It was not the Garden of Eden because it was paradise. It was paradise because God was there. He was present. He was meeting in a holy sanctuary with His people like He is right now this morning. Or like He meets with you sometimes in the mornings when you're praying and doing your, your personal worship in the morning. God is present and it's His presence, that relationship that makes paradise where we have love, communion, fellowship, in Genesis, right away from the very first chapters, the very first words you hear, the Spirit of God is hovering. He's speaking. He is forming. He's taking dust, clay. He's molding and shaping. He puts the man to sleep. He takes a rib. He gives the man, the woman. He rests on the seventh day. Do you see it? God is providentially present in this world. He is not Aristotle's God, the unmoved mover who's up there somewhere who just sort of oversees all of the calamities and is not moved by them and, and does nothing to move them. He's not the clockmaker who winds it up and then steps back and just watches things roll. He's involved. It is, as my brother David reminded me just this week, it is the defining doctrine of Reformed theology and could say almost all of Christianity is God's interaction in providence. Our own shorter catechism says, what is providence? Providence is God's works of providence are His most holy and divine interaction with His creation. 
And if you can see that, that He is not simply standing back and watching your life roll by, but is active and involved in everything that you do, it will change the way you look at your relationship. God's works of providence. His hand. Invisible. In your life. In everything. Small to large. The Spirit hovering. But what happens? Look at verse 10. There's poison. The relationship is poisoned. And every one of us knows what that's like to have a relationship that gets soured, that gets poisoned. can happen in the closest of families. can happen between husbands and wives who at one point were, were so in love, they had stars in their eyes, nothing could go wrong. It's romance, romance, romance. And some years later, you know, it starts to get a little bit sour or old or tired, whatever the case may be. And so we all know what it is to have a relationship. Verse 10, He heard the sound. They heard the sound and look what happened. They were afraid. They were naked. And they hid themselves. You know, it's true that the Bible says that we are enemies of God. The New Testament says we're enemies of God, that we're alienated from God, that we are strangers to God, and that the Apostle Paul even goes to say there's no one that seeks God. No, not one. Nobody's seeking Him. And so you would think that what I said earlier about God creating this tension, this enmity, that, that is contradictory, but it's really not. Because think about it. Look, folks, think about this. Every human being that I know that I have ever met, and I haven't met everybody, but I've met a lot of people in my life. And everybody I know, including myself, there's something raw, something empty, something missing inside every one of us. Yes? All of us. And we want something. And we can't seem to find it. So we look for it in all kinds of places. We look for it in good places. We try to get it out of work. We try to get it out of our relationships. We we try to squeeze it out of our marriage. Or maybe you have children and you say, I'm going to squeeze it out of my children. I'm going to make my children perfect children. And you know what will happen to your children if you do that to them? You'll ruin them. Do you know what will happen to your job if you say, I've got to have the perfect job and it's got to give me this amount of satisfaction? You will become to where you hate your job. Yes? You all know what I'm saying. If you look at school, if you go into school and you say, school is it. I've got to make straight A's. School is where I'm going to get it. My career is where I'm going to get it. And you start to squeeze that meaning, that hunger, that raw spot out of that thing. You may make good grades, but school will become odious to you. You'll hate it. And that is nothing less than idolatry. Idolatry is taking anything, good or bad, and making it something ultimate in your life to where without that you have no meaning. And that's the danger that we face because there's a craving. You see, God created enmity 
and left us with this deep hunger, this seeking. And so no, I'm not going to disagree with the Apostle Paul. I don't want to get hit by lightning this morning. No, there's no one that seeks after God. No, there's no one that's, that's seeking righteousness. Of course not. But we're seeking something. Everybody is. Everyone is seeking something. St. Augustine, very famous, first, first paragraph of the Confessions, though some of you have read the Confessions of St. Augustine's. His prayer. Everyone knows his prayer. O oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find what? What? Rest in Thee. There's a restlessness in the heart of man. God put it there. He created enmity with, the, with Satan. He did not leave us to our natural ally. He absolutely refused to give you up, folks. And He said no to the devil. And He said no to Adam and Eve. You've gone this far, but no further. I'm not giving you over to Him. Grace and love. And then he turns around and throughout the Scriptures, I'm just going to give you two. Jeremiah 29 and Matthew chapter 11. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet told the wicked, rebellious people of Israel this, Seek Me and you will find Me. When you seek Me with all your heart. He's telling human beings, Seek Me. I'm not hard to find. Seek Me. And I will be found by you. And Jesus famously got up and told people, come to Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? What will I give you? Rest. I'll fill the restlessness in your hearts. I'll give you rest. Come to Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Look folks, we are made for relationship. We're made for that. And we're made for relationship with God. Sweet. Fellowship, love, and communion. He did not let you go. He determined to make sure that there would be enmity with you, that there would be restlessness in your soul, that you would not ever be satisfied with the trappings of this world. No matter how much or how little we have, the world does not satisfy. Find your satisfaction in Him, however, and all of a sudden, it's like somebody just took off the blind, the, the blindfold. Fall in love with Him. Find your center in Him. Find your relationship with Him. And it's like someone takes the blindfold off and you see the beauty of everything. Everything becomes beautiful. Every good endeavor. The world is filled with beauty and righteousness and grace and love. Yes, there are places where it is horrible, but, there, but, but the vast majority of this earth are covered with good people who love their children and want to educate their families. And don't let the poison of a few places destroy the rest. There is great beauty. And we, as the people of God are called to extend and expand that beauty in every place that we can. Look around. People are seeking. They want to know. Christmas is a great time. Why are we so nostalgic about Christmas? I am. We're putting up our tree and we're doing all these things. And I can't wait for my little grandbaby to come because I want to do all kinds of crazy, nutty stuff with her. 
Because it's Christmas. Why? Because we know there's something special there. Look around. People are seeking. Look inside. What is it that's, that's working in your soul? Where are you hungry? And what are you filling that hunger with? I would say you must look. You must look to the God who says, where are you? Is that relationship possible? Yes. And it's because of this second thing, the gift of enmity. Look at 8 and 9 again. They hid, but, but this famous word in the Bible, boy, without that word, where would we be? But the Lord God called and said, where are you? Where are you? If you have your Bible, if you have your Bible with you and you have a pencil and you're willing to write in your Bible, I want you to write down these words in the margin of your Bible. If you're not comfortable doing that, you don't have to do it. But here's what I want you to write in the margins of your Bible or on a piece of paper. Or if you're just good at memorizing, never forget what I'm about to say. You ready? God said, where are you? Not, I see you. He said, where are you? Not, I see you. That... My friends, is the Gospel. It doesn't come in verse 15 like we often think. That's the proto-euangelion in verse 15 about the seed and crushing the serpent and all that. No, the Gospel is actually there. Where are you? Not, I see you. Where are you means what? Grace! I see you means what? Judgment. God showed grace when He said, where are you? What did He told Adam and Eve? He said, if you eat from this tree, what will happen to you? You will die. Did they die? Don't anybody say yes, because they're still alive right here. Did they die? Did they die? They did not die. They are still alive after they eat the fruit. Now granted, they spiritually die. But let me challenge you. You have your Bible there? Who has a Bible? Do you have a Bible? Uh, AC, read me the part about where they spiritually died. Don't, don't even try, but go. I'm going to... Okay. Okay. Later, later, uh, uh, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, 15, chapter 50 of Genesis. Does it ever say they spiritually died? Please, all you biblical scholars. Anybody? No. So did they die? No. Who said yes? No, they did not die. They lived. They lived. Now, did they die spiritually? Yes, but much later we find that out and we are able to figure that out, right? But I've always taught you in this church, what have I taught you? Context what? 
Context determines meaning. So right now, stick with the story. Let Moses tell you the story. Don't let the Apostle John from uh, John chapter 3 tell you the story. Get to that later. You with me? Tracking? Everybody? Have I lost you totally? Should we just go have coffee and refreshments? <laughs> yes, they died spiritually. Yes, they lost. The image of God in them was corrupted and they died spiritually. But they still did not die. And when He told them on the day you eat of, you shall surely die, they knew what He meant. And that's why they were what? Why they were hiding. Where are you? Grace. He shows tender mercy. He forgoes judgment. He extends mercy, love, and forgiveness. Forgiveness and true repentance. Forgiveness always precedes. This is something else you can write in your notes. Forgiveness always precedes repentance. Always. Otherwise, repentance would be meaningless. We can talk about that after church because I'm sure that's going to make your head spin. But forgiveness always precedes repentance. And true repentance, listen carefully, true repentance is always a response to the extension of grace and mercy. You don't repent and then God says, oh gosh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I will. I'll repent. I'll, I'll accept your repentance and I will forgive you. Repentance is always a response to an outstretched hand of love and mercy and grace. Otherwise, it would be meaningless. And He creates enmity, hostility. But they hide. And this is the problem that I think we have, folks. We hide. Uh, Dr. Dan Allender in, in his... Uh, in his book, uh, The Wounded Heart, says this. It's really quite remarkable. Listen. An experience of shame will change our hearts. An experience of shame will change our hearts. Either it will compel us to shut down, or it will draw us to God in shock, Amazement and awe. So what Dr. Allender is saying is this. When we experience sin, when we sin, and we experience shame and guilt, our tendency is to hide. You see, it will compel. Some people are compelled to hide when they sin. To cover their sin. To mask their sin. We do a great job. In fact, our parking lot out here is where we should have the cameras because that's where we really are good at it. We mask all of our sins before we come into church because we don't want anybody to see us the way we really are. Right? But there's someone who sees you the way you really are. He sees you and He doesn't say, I see you. He says, where are you? He calls you to repent. He has the outstretched hand of love. Where are you? Here it is. Come to me. Seek me. It's open. It's ready. Where are you? It's amazing. It's amazing grace. Our first impulse, folks, is to hide, isolate, cover up, make excuses, self-protect. Instead, instead, 
confess your sin. Confession is not telling God something He doesn't already know. The word confession means to agree with God that what you have done is wrong. That's all it is. It's just agreeing with Him. Expose your sin, your guilt, your shame. Expose it to the light of God's holiness. You see, we spend a lot of our energy, folks, trying to sew fig leaves together and cover our nakedness. And it's the worst thing. And I've urged you and urged you at Christ the King. If there's a not enough, I can't speak for other churches, but I want our church to be a place where the people that are that are part of this church and others that God may bring to us that are wounded and broken and hurting and have a mess in their life that they feel entirely comfortable getting around us, not because we simply tolerate their mess and their sin and their bad behavior, but because we recognize a kindred spirit. Yes? We recognize a kindred spirit. And if people can come into this church and come into the life of this small community here and know that they're safe with us, that we're not going to to go crazy if we find out something about them, but we're going to embrace them and say, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. And not only that, I've been there. If we can do that, folks, people would flock to us. The reason they stay away from us as Christians is because they think we think we're better than them. And they don't measure up. And so people are hiding. They're isolated. It's natural. And we want to create an environment. We have always striven for this, but I hope we'll do it even more this new year if you make a new year resolution. Become transparent. I mean, you don't have to tell everybody every detail. Look, there's some things I don't want to know. And I promise you there's things about me you don't want to know. But I mean, Ken, it, there's, a, there's a, a level of reality that we can achieve, folks, where we can say, you know what, I, I know what it is to sin. I know what it is to have a hard heart. I know what it is to be prideful. And let people see it. Why? Because we're about restoring, third point, real quickly, restoring of relationships, the bruised heel. Look at verse 15. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Some of the English translations change the translation. He shall bruise your head, you shall crush his, you shall crush his head, you shall bruise his The word in Hebrew is identical. It's identical. And I think the reason that it's an identical word. So what it says in the ESV, actually, our translation is a good one. It says, He shall bruise uh, your head, you shall bruise his heel. uses the same word because it is the same word. And one commentator put it this way. Listen carefully. The serpent wounds the heel that crushes him, and so Satan would afflict the humanity of Christ and bring suffering and persecution on his people. But, listen, the fatal shall be the stroke which Satan shall, re- shall receive from Christ, though it is probable he did not understand the nature of it. At the time, he didn't understand his doom. So what what the commentator is saying is this, that the same stroke that crushes the head of the serpent and bruises the heel of the human is one stroke. 
It is one thing. It is one act of restoration. The same word for the action of the serpent and the seed. One action accomplishes both. The bruised and stricken and wounded heel promises you this. Listen. Wounds and pain and suffering will not kill you. Can we say, cannot? I think we can. That humanity would overcome, not in spite of. Listen, folks. God does not save you in spite of your sin. He does not save you in spite of your weakness. He doesn't save you in spite of your mess. He saves you because of your weakness, because of your sin, and because of your mess. That's how much He loves you. That's the extent to which He goes. He does not love or do anything in spite of anything else. He does things because. And He looks at a wounded, naked, broken humanity trying desperately to sow fig leaves and hiding behind bushes that can't possibly hide them from a God who can see everything. And instead of saying, I see you, He says, where are you? Holds out a hand of love and tender mercy. Our humanity, folks, is not the problem. And how do we know that? So many Christians are anxious to throw off this body and go to someplace called heaven. When you are not made for heaven, you are made for the earth. You're a human being. And you'll live all eternity here on this earth in a human body. Why do we know that? We know that. Because of Christmas. We know that because God sent His Son in sinful flesh, in the weakness of sinful flesh, so that He could, so that Jesus Christ could be the one who had the power, the heal, the humanity. The word heal means humanity. Who had the humanity and could take that humanity and crush the serpent's head, thereby delivering the stroke of death to the serpent, albeit incurring a wound in his own life. The wound of the cross. But it's that stroke that saves us. It's that humanity of Jesus Christ that saves us. Listen, let me close with this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. For God has done, listen, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. This is our hope of having a relationship with God. Of having the enmity with Satan, seeing that enmity as a gift to us and embracing the cross so that we can, in fact, live with Him in a new creation. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You and give You glory for Your goodness and mercy.
I pray that at this Christmas time that You will cause us to love You more deeply and more dearly and see the glory in those words, where are You? Not I see You. How You love us. Fill us now, Father, with the bread of heaven that we might taste and see the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. Amen.